uh, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and get ready to learn uh, this morning. So we are going to be in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 31 today. After all this time, we have finally made it to the end of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 31 today, wrapping up this book. We'll have Christmas starting next week, and then in the new year, we're going to jump right back into this series in 2 Samuel. So I'll give you a moment if you want to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 31. If you don't have a Bible with you or you uh, are having a hard time finding it, we'll have the words on the screens next to me so you can follow along up there. Once again, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 31. I'll give you just a moment to get ready if you're still looking for it or getting your notebook out, and then we'll get started. All right. If we're all ready, let's go and start in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Then the Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Geboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor-bearer would not do it, because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Geboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among their people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Beth Shan. When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out journeyed all night and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Beth Shen. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterwards, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, Jabesh and fasted seven days. What do you do when you reach the end? Here we are at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, but in another sense, the, the feeling that you get here, the, the, the sort of underlying mood of this chapter feels a lot like certain places that we get to in our life where it feels like we are at the end of our rope, as we put it. We, we are at the end of our strength. First Samuel, as we're going to look at in a little bit more detail here in a moment, uh, ends on a fairly dark note. It, is not, it does not end on a story of victory, does it? And it is on a story of a lot of death on a lot of losses. It ends on a dark note. In a sense, it's the end of the book, but it also seems as though Israel and Israel's kingdom, right, with their first king and his sons, 
have seemingly, it feels almost, come to their own end. They've come to an end of their own strength, come to an, an end of what they can all do, uh, what they can do, come to an end of their hope. And I think that a lot of us also come to places like that in our life, where we say that we have come to the end of ourself. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you have come to the end of what you can do, the end of your strength, and you're in a mood very similar to this chapter here? One where you say to yourself, I'm not sure if I can do another week of this, whether that be your job, whether that be a difficult relationship, whether that be your faith that you're struggling in, whether it be a war with sin. We come to the end of ourselves. What do you do at the end? That's the question that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this, on this uh, chapter thinking about this sermon and what we have to learn from it. And I think what we can learn from this chapter today is what to do when we reach the end. What to do when we, when we reach the end in ourselves, when we look around at the world that we are in and we look at the culture that we are in and we look at the various forces of opposition that are stacked up against us, when we look at the darkness that you might go through or that we might go through as a church, uh, corporately, as a church in America or wherever else, Whenever we reach the end, what do we do? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I think that we have some great lessons and insights to learn from this chapter and uh, a truly inspiring message to then uh, lead us on to continue to persevere whenever we do reach the end. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the defeat in this chapter, the dishonor, but then the determination. So we're going to look at three things. They all start with a D. Defeat, dishonor, and determination. That's what we're going to look at today. So first of all, we're going to start with defeat. Like I said, 1 Samuel ends on a rather dark note. Now, it's not as though the whole book before this was nothing but butterflies and happiness and, and, and victories and things going well. If you have ever read 1 Samuel or if you have been with us for any period of time in this series, you know there have been a lot of ups and downs. There's been some victories, but there's been some defeats. There's been some great, bright moments, but then there have been some dark moments where things did not go well. People did not make the right choices, and so on. So th this has been a book where we've seen a lot of opposition. We've seen a lot of setbacks, but despite it all, God's ki uh, kingdom continued to move, and God continued to work. And here we come to the end of the book, and where we might hope for a happily ever after, we instead end on another setback. We instead end on one of the worst defeats, one of the worst setbacks, one of the darkest moments that we see, that we have seen in the entire book. The last time that we saw, that we saw King Saul was a few chapters ago in chapter 28. If you guys remember, in chapter 28, the last time that we saw Saul, he had gone to find a medium. He, he, he went to find a sorcerer, someone who could conjure up for him the spirit of Samuel to tell him what was going to happen in this upcoming battle that we read about here in this chapter. It's a, it's a dark episode, not just because they go to, a literal, to, to work in literal witchcraft in the middle of the night, but also because of how low the king of Israel, God's anointed king, has stooped uh, to go to a medium, to a sorcerer, to seek divine direction, right? And that chapter ends with a, on a very depressing note because he receives the message that, him, that he and his sons are going to die, they're going to lose the battle. Saul is shaken almost unto death, and then he leaves out into the night. And then we have two chapters that look at David. And in those two chapters, we see a couple of different times that God delivered David First of all, David had been caught up in this scheme of his own creation where he was now 
a part of the Philistine forces about to go to war against his own people because they thought that David was, uh, had defected to their side. He's caught up in this situation, doesn't know what to do with himself. God comes through in a mighty way and delivers him from that situation. They're relieved, they go back home, but now they found that their home, their wives and their children, and all their possessions had been ransacked and taken uh, by the Amalekites. So they go on the warpath, once again, God comes through for them. He comes through for them by strengthening their hands in battle. They win and they recover everything. They had not lost a single thing. So we get a couple of chapters of deliverance in David's life. And then here we come back to Saul, who we had left off before. There's no deliverance this time. It would have been a lot funner if 1 Samuel would have ended one chapter before, right? Whenever, uh, whenever David had, had had this wonderful victory and they were celebrating and they had uh, all the, the spoils of battle and they had recovered all their families and their possessions. That would have been a high note, but instead it ends here. There's no deliverance. The king and his sons, including Jonathan, they're all dead. Many of Israel's men have been killed and those who were not killed had fled. Whenever the people in the cities who were nearby Mount Geboa heard about what happened, they fled for their lives. And now the Philistines have expanded their uh, control even more into Israel by taking it over these cities. It ends on a dark note. More than that, the Philistines then take Saul, Saul's body, his armor, and the bodies of his sons, and they take them on a victory parade throughout Philistia, throughout their towns, to celebrate their victory, and to, because they believed that their gods had won over the God of Israel. It's a dark note that it ends on, but here's what we need to see, even in spite of all of this darkness. This is the first big point. Even in the appearance of defeat, God's word remains true. Even in the appearance of defeat, God's word remains true. Even in spite of all of that darkness, even in spite of all of that defeat, even in spite of the uh, magnificent setbacks that they had uh, gone through, in, in spite of the appearance of all these things, what we need to understand is that God's word remains true. And that though it looks like Israel had lost, though it looks like they had lost here, they serve the God who never loses. Because here's what had happened. God had pronounced his judgment on Saul and his household already earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. Saul, who was God's anointed king, had, uh, had, had given up what should have been uh, his kingdom by following after and chasing after his own kingdom. He was not serving God, and he was not uh, following after God's way, but he was following after his own way. He was following his own wisdom. He had rejected Samuel and the other prophets. He had continually disobeyed God, and because of these things, God had removed his anointing on Saul and, now, and pronounced judgment on Saul and his household. And so, in spite of this defeat, what we need to remember, what God is doing here is he is proving his word is true. His word of judgment against Saul was fulfilled here in this chapter whenever Saul and his household were wiped out. I know that it's not a, a fun thing to take note of, but we need to take note that God's word remained true. The only reason that the Philistines won here in this battle, in this chapter, the only reason that God allowed the Philistines to win is because he was allowing them to win in order to fulfill his own purpose, in order to fulfill his own word. So this is why I said that in the appearance of defeat, we need to understand that God is still in control, that God has not lost, and that his word still remains true. Because even in this moment, the Philistines are only, in this momentary victory, fulfilling what God has decreed. 
So God's word remains true. Now, that's not necessarily inspiring for us to take note of that God's word of judgment remained true against Saul. And what are we supposed to learn from that? Well, well, this, consider this. If God's word of judgment on Saul is true, then we can be equally assured that his word of promise to David was true and to us. Even in spite of every, all of the seemingly bad news that we see here, if we can look through the bad news, if we can look through the fog, read them between the lines and understand, wait a minute, God is still in control here. He's still in control. And what has come to pass is what he had determined would come to pass. Then what we can learn from that is like, okay, so if God can stay in control in even the worst of situations, then his word of promise, his word of victory, his word of grace and his covenantal promises that he had made to David, well, if his promises had remained true, if his word of judgment remained true to Saul, then his word of promise and of grace and of covenant will remain true to David. And the same thing is true for you and I. Regardless of how dark a situation seems in your own life, you can take assurance in this, that God's word remains true, that you are not in a situation that is outside of his control. You have not gone into a situation where, or, or, or a place or a season where, no, now the Philistines are in control. The Philistines of whatever they might be, right, in your life. The Philistines are in control, and they're the ones who now hold your life in their hands or your future in their hands. That is not true. No matter what kind of opposition you face or struggles you're going through, God remains in control. And his word of covenant to you that his covenantal love, his love that has been promised and committed to you will never be taken away, even whatever you might be going through individually, as a family, or we as a church, that word remains true. Whether in darkness or in light, whether in defeat or in victory, what really matters is to have a God whose word remains faithful and true in spite of it all. And that is what we need to see happening here in this, in this dark, tragic chapter, that God is still at work and his word is still faithful and true. Now, what does that mean for our lives just day to day? What it means is this, is the simple application of that you need to trust God's promises, whether in defeat or in victory. You need to trust God's promises in no matter which season you're going through. Look, if you've if you've been alive for any amount of time, right, if you've been an adult for any amount of time, you know that we all go through times where it seems like everything's going our way, and then you go through a time where things are really rotten, and they're, they're not going that great, right? In your Christian life, you go through seasons where it feels as though you're in victory, right? You're, you're, your faith is strong. You feel God's presence. You are consistent in the word and prayer. You're defeating sin, but then you go through another season right after it where everything's the opposite, <laughs> Your faith all of a sudden is dry. God's presence seems distant. You're struggling and wrestling with temptation. You're falling to sin more than you had before, and you wonder, what's going on? Right? We all go through seasons of highs and lows and victories and defeats. But here's what you need to understand. Though your life goes through these seasons, and sometimes it feels as though you know, you're in a raft boat in the ocean that's just going up and down along with the highs and lows, the peaks and the troughs of the waves, right? Despite it all, God's word remains steady, okay? Whenever you're going through a season of victory, God's word isn't true to you then, but then not true to you whenever you're going through defeat. God's word, his love, 
His covenant and commitment to you remains true whenever you are at your best in fighting sin and living obedience to him, and it is, is as true to you at your worst, at your lowest. Whenever you are in the trough of the wave and you are being uh, crushed and pounded by the seas, whenever you are giving into sin, whenever you have uh, forgotten to seek after his presence or you have not been discerning, looking to follow his will, here's the thing. Though you are not steady and, though, and that though life around us is chaotic, God is steady. His word remains true. Whenever you are being tossed in the waves and the winds of the ocean, his word is the anchor to hold you. Whenever we're being pounded on by the world around us, God's word is our shield. It always remains true. So whether you're going through a season of defeat right now, some of you guys are going through seasons of defeat. It's hard. But whether you're going through a season of defeat or praise God, you're going through victory, no matter what, trust in his word and hold fast to that anchor that remains steady in it all. Here's how you can, and here's what you need to remember. When we look at this story, the tragedy isn't so much in the death of Saul. Saul should have received what he got here far earlier. Saul was a wicked tyrant. His death is not so much a tragedy. But whenever we look at his sons, and we especially look at that, that first name on the list, I think it's significant that whenever it lists the, the deaths in the household, that the first name it mentions is Jonathan. Here we see God's righteous judgment on the wicked in Saul but in God bringing about his judgment, we also, we also see, and in the Philistines coming, the death of the righteous. We see a good man, Jonathan. We see a man who had been faithful to David and faithful to God. We see a man in Jonathan who had uh, not chosen his own throne over the throne that God had anointed, which was David's. Jonathan, who had relinquished his right to his own kingdom and chosen the kingdom of God instead. We see this good and righteous man, this dear friend of David, and he is swept away in the battle as well. We see the death of Jonathan, but then David having been spared. And here's the thing. Sometimes in life, you're Jonathan, and sometimes you're David. Sometimes you're the one that gets caught up in the battle, and you're, sometimes you're the one who, who experiences uh, those, those consequences of defeat. Sometimes we're delivered from it. But here's what we need to remember. Saul received his judgment. Jonathan, though he was righteous, was swept up in it. God was not executing judgment on Jonathan like he was on Saul. Because we need to remember this. What was their end? What was the end for each one of them? Saul, because he had chosen his own kingdom over God's kingdom, his own throne over God's glory, right? His end in this judgment was permanent separation from God. But for Jonathan, who had chosen God's kingdom over his own, who had chosen God's word over his own and God's purpose over his own purpose, though he was caught up in the judgment against the wicked here, what was his end? It was very different than theirs. It was very different than his father Saul's. It was very different than anyone else who had been complicit with Saul. Because for him, who had chosen God's kingdom and had made it his, his number one pursuit and aim, he received that which he had already chosen in his life. For Jonathan, this was the entrance into the, a, a, a full entrance into the kingdom that he had already desired and sought after. 
Here's what that means for us. Whenever you're going through a trial, you're going through a season of defeat, and you feel, you know, I kind of feel more like Jonathan here. I feel like I'm about to be slain by the Philistines around me. I feel like God has abandoned me here, and I I am facing the certain loss of everything that I hold dear, or I'm about to fall away. Here's what you need to remember, that for those who choose and seek God's kingdom over everything else, this is something that can never be taken away from you. So be like Jonathan, who relinquished his right to his own kingdom, and because he did that, received the kingdom of God. If you as well seek seek his kingdom, God's kingdom, and you hold on to his promises, then you can never be truly defeated. After Saul and his household are slain by the Philistines, the Philistines are convinced not only that they have defeated Saul, but they are convinced that their idols and their gods have defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel, which is why they take Saul's armor and it says they bring it and they take it and put it into the temple of the Ashtoreths. It was, it, was a, it was like a spoil from battle to say, look at how our gods won over them. They take, like I said before, the body of Saul and his sons, and they parade it throughout their towns to once again say, look at how our gods defeated Yahweh. And then they hang it up on the wall of one of their cities as a sign to continue going, look at how we won over the Israelites. Look at how our gods won over their God. Worse than even Israel's defeat here in chapter 31 is Yahweh's disgrace. Even worse than what happened on Mount Geboa is what happens whenever Yahweh's name and his glory is dishonored and the disgrace to his name that comes whenever they, whenever they celebrate and they have their victory parade afterwards. And for the true Israelites, it is this ultimately that they mourned. They mourned the loss of their king. They mourned the loss of hope in their kingdom that they had been following and living under supposedly being crushed. But even more than that, they, lived, they, they mourned under the appearance that Yahweh had been disgraced and he had lost. Here's the second big point for us. True believers live their lives in a manner that does not bring dishonor to God. True believers live their lives in a manner that does not bring dishonor to God. Because true believers, just like the true Israelite, for us, what is our main and primary concern in life, more than any defeat that we might face personally, or more than any potential setback that we might face as, as a church, or that I might face in my business, or whatever else and so on, is this. My concern is in God's honor. Even more than I'm concerned with the honor of my own name, or my appearance and reputation, I'm concerned with God's honor with his name being glorified, with his reputation being, being lifted higher up, with his name being famous and being renowned over my own or my church or whatever else. True believers, we live our lives with this focus that whenever we, whenever we uh, are trying to obey him, whenever we are trying to live as we believe he has called us to, our goal here is not primarily in just in our own success, but once again, in making sure that his name is honored in it all. This is important for us to note, and it's it's something interesting for us to see in this passage here, because how easy would it be for us to start to think that the, the main thing that the Israelites would have mourned would have been their nation? But the main thing that the Israelites would have mourned would have been their disgr- the disgrace to Yahweh's name. 
which is the reason why, as we're going to look at here in a moment, those men from Jabesh Gilead would see it as so important to go and rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons because they saw that dishonor to God's name that was happening, the disgrace to Yahweh that was happening in Philistia, and so they stepped up to do something about it. In our own lives, it's so easy for us to get caught up in thinking that the most important thing is my appearance and how I am perceived by the world around me, right? Or how successful I am in my life, in my, in my family, relationships, in my work, and how people perceive maybe, maybe me and my marriage or my kids and making sure that and, and thinking that that is the most important thing that I need to do. So often, and I think this is something that is, is uh, supported by our social media culture, so often we all live as our own personal like brand managers. So often we live with this mindset of like, I'm not just supposed to be Aaron, but I'm also supposed to be the PR manager for Aaron, right? And, and make sure that my life is crafted and appears in a certain way through, through my Instagram and Facebook and everything else that I'm doing, that I'm perceived in a certain light. And because we live in this culture where our, our focus is laid so heavily on how we are perceived and on our appearance and on our own reputation, I think that very frequently we, we tend to lose sight of how the importance should not be on what is my reputation, but what is my life doing to add to God's reputation? I get focused on my own honor. And, and I'm perceiving, and, and I'm trying to think, how are the people around me perceiving my image based off of my win here or my loss there? Instead of, what am I doing through it all and the wins and the losses to add to the honor of God's name? And losing a certain self-consciousness over what people think about me. Because what they think about me is not important, but what they think about God is important. And I want my life to point to his honor to bring, to bring glory to his name. God's honor should always be our primary concern as we live our public lives. Is God's honor your primary concern in your work? Or are you just trying to climb the ladder? Or, or are you just trying to please a boss? Or are you just living for the approval of your coworkers or the approval of your clients and customers, for the approval of maybe even your family? And your friends that they would see, oh, so-and-so, they're, they're doing great, and they're working up the ladder, and they're getting their raises, and they're, and they're doing this and that. Are you living for the approval of all those people and just the, the, uh, the, the honor of your own image and name? Or in your work, are you doing as Paul called us to whenever he said, work as unto the Lord, right? Not being your own brand manager, and not working as unto just your supervisor, but unto God. Making sure that through your job and what you are doing, whatever you might be doing, whether your job right now is being a student, for that's a lot of you, whether your job right now is being a parent, whether your job is something else in, in, in the marketplace. Is your concern God's honor? In your family, are you trying to design a marriage? And are you trying to parent your children? And build a household in a way that your household brings honor to God's name? Or are you trying to, or, or is your household instead centered around just comfort and fun? Do you see your household as something anointed by God to bring glory to his name, to show the world how honorable and how worthy he is of our worship? Or is it instead just an entertainment center, a rec like a recreational hall? Right? Or is it something just to be presented to others to gain their approval? 
in your friendships even? Are your friendships just about you and them and the fun that you can have or the things that you can do? Or is your friendships something that you see as even in the fun? I'm not saying they shouldn't be fun, but but even in the fun and even in all the things that we enjoy and, and, and the things that cement us together as friends, we're trying to bring honor to God's name even through these friendships. In other words, in all of your life, Christian, your primary responsibility in your work, in your family, in your friendships, in your hobbies, and in everything else is to bring glory and honor to God's name. But what do we do whenever God is dishonored in the world around us? Because you can be trying to do your absolute best, and as we all know, and as we all see on a near day-to-day basis in our culture, though you might try to do your best, God's name will be dishonored and disgraced nearly daily in the world around us. And especially as our culture continues to move more and more away from God, and and, and as Christianity becomes more and more marginalized, to the greater degree that God's name will be openly dishonored and disgraced. Whether that be through opposition to us and to God's name, or through the bad examples that there are out there being lifted up and saying, oh, this is representative of all who follow God. You know what I'm talking about. What do we do then? Whenever God's name is dishonored in the culture around us, let me give you a couple of practical tips or practical steps all underneath the, the, the banner of endeavor to honor God's name in the culture. So in your personal life, but also in your public life, endeavor to honor God's name in the culture. The first practical thing you can do is to honor God in your personal conduct. Okay, so I know this is what I said before, but I'm going to say it again. Honor God in your personal conduct, because this is one thing that we need to understand. At the end of the day, we cannot control the world. At the end of the day, we can't control the culture. We can't control the media and how they love to prop up the worst examples of people who who do things so-called in the name of God, right? And say that that's representative of all who follow God. But you know what? At the end of the day, we can't control that. We can't control those people who are, the, who are bad examples, and we can't control a media who will prop them up. We can't control, at the end of the day, the government. We can't control so many different things, but here's what you can do. Once again, in your own personal conduct and in your own personal life, endeavor to honor God in it so that your neighbors around you and your coworkers around you will be given a counterexample to what they are being presented with and seen and and being shown in the rest of the world around them. Honor God in your personal conduct. Secondly, uh, be devoted to God's honor over your own appearance. Be devoted to God's honor over your own appearance because I think what often happens whenever we are being uh, opposed and, and bashed, however you want to put it, in the world around us because God's name is being dishonored, I think a lot of the times we start to, in a sense, kind of uh, start to fall into and believe the narratives that are being told about us. Whenever people start saying, uh, oh, you know, look at, the, look at these bad examples of people who do bad things or do embarrassing things, so-called in the name of God, aren't all you guys just like them? And I think so often we, we kind of start to fall into that narrative and, start, and try to start playing defense, like, oh, we're, we're not really like them, or, or maybe we, we start trying to hide certain aspects or, or soften certain aspects of what it means to be devoted to God's honor because, because we don't want to be associated with those people, with those bad examples, right? Because we, and we, and we so often say it with these lines, we say, you know, we don't want to do things that harm our witness, 
The church loves talking about what are we doing and what should we avoid to uh, increase our witness or harm our witness. And we're always talking about our witness instead of talking about God's honor. Because I think the more and more concerned we are about our witness, which really becomes just another term for our publicity or how well we do PR or our marketing or how well like the name of Redeemer or whatever else is perceived by the world, that's really what we often mean by, by our witness is just a churchy word for brand image. Let's be honest. Because we then start to, like I said, soften certain edges of what it means to follow God. Maybe there's certain topics that we don't speak as boldly on as we should because we, we don't want to harm our witness, right? Or we, we start giving into some of the narratives of the world rather than just saying, you know what, those narratives aren't true. Because once again, we don't want to harm our witness. It's just a churchy word for brand management. Instead of being so concerned with our brand, our image, our so-called witness, why don't we just be devoted to God's honor? Once again, like I said before, let's just be focused on what we can do and what we know is right. Let's keep living our lives in our households and in our churches and in our public, uh, and in our public witness and in our public lives, uh, living them according to God's honor and what he has called us to, obedience to the word, trusting that if we are obedient to God's word, which always remains faithful and true within his word and our lives which are being lived according to it will win out in the end. So endeavor to honor God's name in your personal conduct. Be devoted to his honor over your own appearance, what people might think about you. And then lastly, just be faithful in your engagement. Be faithful in your engagement. By your, the witness of your life and by your words, present the culture with the God whom they should honor. When it is appropriate to speak, and you, then, then, then speak, right? Sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes you don't need to engage, and that's okay. But whenever it is appropriate, then, then, then speak, right? Engage. Present a different example. Let's look at the last section here, determination. Saul and his sons had been, their, their bodies paraded throughout Philistia. Um, they had been shamed. The name of God, of Yahweh, had been shamed and disgraced. And their bodies are hung up on a, in a wall, on a wall in one of the cities as a as a further disgrace, right, as their own trophies. And so it says that these brave, courageous men, these strong men from a town called Jabesh-Gilead, got up together, and they went on a clandestine mission throughout the middle of the night to go and rescue these bodies and bring them back to their home where they belonged. How incredible. I mean, if you think the Bible's boring, you just haven't read it. How incredible, and what a cool story is that, that these, that these courageous men got up. What we need to understand, the, the Jabesh-Gilead to the town that they had gone to, round trip was about 20 to 22 miles, right? So in the middle of the night, they got up and they snuck into Philistine territory, right? Ready, if this thing goes south, they're going to fight their way out of it or die. Right? So they go into what is seemingly a suicide mission into Philistine territory in the middle of the night to rescue the body of their fallen king. A fallen king in more ways than one, right? To rescue the, the body of their fallen king and their sons, and his, and his sons. And then, it's a 20-mile round trip, right? So the 10 or 11 miles they had gone into, now carrying the bodies of these men 10 or 11 miles back into their home, 
strong, courageous men who, recognizing they could not overturn or change what had happened in Mount Geboa, Israel had lost. The kingdom had been crushed. They couldn't change or overcome that, but they recognized something that they could do. And whenever they recognized what they could do, they went after it. They went for it. Here's the third point. In the face of darkness, God's people remain determined to follow the mission. We look around at the world around us. We look at the opposition there's to us. We look at the setbacks. We look at the darkness. And we, there are oftentimes when we recognize, you know what, I can't change everything. And maybe I can't change this whole situation, but we see. But there, are, there is something that I can do. If you look around at your life, there are opportunities for you to live courageously. There are opportunities for you to do good works of righteousness and obedience to God's word that, that though it might not change the battle entirely, it is something that God has called you to do. In the face of darkness, we, remain, we should remain determined to whatever God has called us to do. The question is, whenever we look at the world around us today, when we look at our own lives, whenever we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of our own strength and say, okay, now at this moment, will I still do what I can do? Will I live by courage or will I live by fear? Will I live by righteousness or will I live by weakness? The question is, will you in your own personal life or in our culture today, are there still people today who will step up to do just what they can? Are there still people today who will step up to follow God's calling, to do the right thing, even in the face of darkness. Are there still people like that today? There might be, but I think that every single one of us and every single one of you here have the potential to become people like that. I think that all of you have within you the potential to become like one of those strong men from Jabesh Gilead. The question is, what gave them the courage? What gave them the courage? So we might know what gives us the courage. What gave them the courage to get up on this clandestine mission in the middle of the night, in the face of all the danger, in the face of the, the perils that they would have to go against, and, and the odds that were stacked against them? They did it anyway. What gave them the courage? It doesn't tell us exactly what was on their mind, and so, and so we can only guess, we can only wonder, but here's something that I like to think gave them the courage. They knew they still had a king. They knew that they still had a king because though Israel and its men had been scattered on Mount Geboa, God had a shepherd waiting to come and gather his scattered sheep, who was David. God's true anointed king, his king through whom he was going to build an eternal dynasty and a kingdom that would not end, was still there. He was out in the wilderness, and, and I, I can't help but think that these men endeavored to do what they knew was right, that they, that they counted the cost and encouraged, went and did what was the right thing to do anyway because they knew that in spite of the battle and, and the setback, that in the face of the darkness, that they still had a king out there. And because they still had a king out there, there was a battle worth fighting. What about us? Friends, we have a king as well. We have King Jesus. We have a king who overcame death for us and rose again from the grave on our behalf. And if he is your king, if he is your savior, what that means is, is that your death 
What that means is that uh, the wrath of God, which should have been yours, the penalty that you should have paid, has been laid down in his grave. Amen? Just like we sang about in worship today. Jesus, if you are in him, if he is your king, he laid your death in his grave. So no matter what could happen to you today, just like Jonathan, that kingdom and that future and that covenant that has been promised to you cannot be taken away. And so as long as we have a resurrected king, we have a reason to fight. As long as we have that king who overcame the grave for us, who rose again in victory, he gives us courage to face any darkness. What do you do when you come to the end of yourself? What do you do when you come to the end in your own strength? Or you look at the world around us and what is stacked against us in the church today, what is stacked against us in the culture Wherever you feel yourself wanting to quit, because friends, you are going to want to quit. You're going to want to quit. You will be tempted to give into temptation at times. You'll be tempted to say, why am I fighting this so hard? Why not just give in some? Why not just give in to the anger? Why not just give in to the bitterness? Why not just give in to the lust? Why not just give in to the lies, whatever else it might be? You will have to resist being weak wherever you know that you should be strong. Whenever these times come, why not just give in to all of it? Whenever you see what's stacked against us in the culture, why not just go along with it? Wouldn't it be so much easier? Here is why. Because there's still a reason to fight, to endure, to remain, as long as our king is risen over the grave. Let me finish with this. There's this beautiful scene in the Lord of the Rings when... Frodo and Sam are on their journey, and they come to a moment when they are at their end, where they want to quit, where they are tempted to be weak and to just go along, where they want to give up, where they want to indulge in, in the, the sin of laziness and abdicating their, their, their calling and their mission rather than continue on. And Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger there were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could they be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. As long as there's good in the world and our king reigns, there's still a reason to fight. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we ask that you would meet us here in our weakness, that you would meet us in the fear that we so often give into and live by, that you would meet us even in wherever we are in our sin. Father, that you would show us how we have tried to follow our own kingdoms, or how we have often lived but for the honor of our own name, that we have lived for how we are perceived in the world and not 
been truly concerned primarily with your honor, with your glory, and lived by that regardless of what the world thought about us. Lord, meet us in this place where we are weak and broken, where we are at the end of ourselves. And Father, help us to see that because of your grace and because of your love for us, there is still the opportunity to be strengthened. There's forgiveness for our sins and our faults. That there's the opportunity for us to be like those strong men of Jabesh Gilead. That if we would let go of our own power, that if we would reach the end of ourselves and so then leave our own strength behind and instead cling fast to your word and hold on to that anchor, that we would look to the cross and see how our risen Savior laid our death down in his own grave and that as long as he stands in victory, that his victory is ours and so we have reason to fight. We have reason to continue. We have reason to endure, to remain, to not give up because your word remains true. It remains steady throughout all of our ups and downs and it will win out in the end. That we are following, that we have chosen a kingdom, that we are seeking a kingdom that cannot be taken away, that cannot be defeated. And so, despite what we see in the moment and that what is told to us right now, we choose that kingdom over what the world might tell us. We choose your word over the words of the world. Father, we ask for that grace and for that strength today as we seek to respond to this message and to live our lives in courage and in faithfulness to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.